We will, uh, in time, get to what is on the screen, gospel success. You might be uh, confused after just hearing that passage, how it says gospel success um, on the screen, but hopefully that uh, confusion that some of you might have will go away by the time we get to that point. But before we get to that, uh, this is a difficult passage of Scripture. And to be transparent with you, to be brutally honest, as I studied this passage this week, there was a lot of internal wrestling. I don't know, uh, th this passage, if you were listening and following to the passage that was just read, there is a lot of violence uh, in this passage. And violence is one thing. But then when we read, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went, and we read that twice, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went, the linking of the Lord to expanding the territory of Israel through military conquest and violence was difficult for me to process. Uh, so I don't know if you've experienced this. I'm guessing you have. You read the scripture. And then you kind of question the Scripture or God's goodness because of what the Scripture says. Anybody have that experience? So I want to say before we even get into the text that what I do in my own self, how I respond to myself when I have this dilemma, I, I don't like what I'm reading and maybe it calls me to question God's goodness and I know that the Bible is good and inerrant and God's word for us. So when my feelings are, are, are one thing, but I know that God's word is something else, I, I, I understand that there's an incongruity here. So what I'm trying to say is, as I have walked with the Lord since 1987, my confidence in the Bible has only grown. And my confidence in my own feelings and my own ability to process things has, I don't know that I would say gone completely down, but I am very skeptical of myself and my feelings. And I'm going to talk more about that, not just personally, but for all of us uh, in a few moments. So I'm like finishing before I even start here. What I'm trying to say is we have to know as we come to God's word that he is good and that his word is true and helpful even when we don't feel like it is. Did you get that? Say yes. All right. All right. So let's just get into it here. Let's just get into the text. Uh, verse 1 in 2 Samuel 8. It says, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Metheg Amma from the control of the Philistines. So that is Methagama, just the most important city. So this is like taking New York City or Washington, D.C. or something to that matter. That's something we're supposed to see here at the beginning of verse 1. We're also supposed to see this little phrase in the course of time. So what we have in 2 Samuel 8 is a summary of all sorts of battles. Some of them may have happened a while ago. Some of them may have even be yet to happen. And so we have a, a catalog, an, an anthology of David's battles, if you will, in 2 Samuel 8. Uh, 
the king of Israel. One commentator puts it this way, says 2 Samuel 8 catalogs David's many military conflicts during his rule over Israel. It describes his wars with nations surrounding Israel on all sides. The archenemy Philistines to the west, the Armenian confederation to the north, the Transjordan nations of Moab and Ammon to the east, and the Edomites to the southeast in the Dead Sea region. So we have a summary of how David had victory in battle in every direction. That's what we have here in 2 Samuel 8, and it's somewhat detailed. And it is somewhat, I don't know about to you, but it is somewhat troubling as we read these details and work through them. Let's come back to the text at verse 2. So David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death. And the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought tribute. So this is a difficult verse to translate in in Hebrew. And so your translation may have said something a little different than mine did. But the gist is very clear. That David used some kind of procedure here after conquering the Moabites. To where he basically executed two out of every three people. With some sort of line measurement or rope, or cord on the ground. This is difficult if you allow your imagination to think about this. It's, it's brutal, and it's harsh. Um, how do we come to terms with this? I'm not going to pretend to be able to deal with it all, but I want to deal with some of this if you are like me and struggle not only with verse 2, but with verses that are to come. Uh, One uh, commentator, last name Judd, he, he helps us and says this. He says, The world of the text, that is 2 Samuel 8, reflects the realities of life for most people who have ever lived. War, instability, and constant struggle for survival. That was a helpful sentence for me to read. As we read 2 Samuel 8, we have to remind ourselves that we as Americans, living 3,000 years after this, that we live in a context of the wealthiest, most powerful nation on the planet. And I think there are probably none of us here who have lived a life afraid that our military or police are going to lose to an aggressor, and we may be killed. Uh, Anybody here lived in that world? I mean, that is the world of 2 Samuel 8. A world of conquests and battle and plunder. It it, it is a world of, of insecurity. And God, in his gracious mercy, decided to call a people out of all the nations. He he decided to call a people out Israel and to redeem them and to give them a land. And he is doing this in the context of ancient Near Eastern warfare that that, that was common and regular. And this is how God gave Israel their territory. Now, when it comes to the Moabites, This is particularly, if you know the Bible, this almost can be a little more difficult. Uh, Another commentator 
tells us this. He says, the violent deed uh, with the Moabites is, 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 given even more, is, is even more surprising because David's great-grandmother uh, was a Moabite. We got our experts in the front row. Ruth, thank you. Ruth, the Moabitess, his great-grandmother. This is difficult uh, to process. But God is a just God, and his ways are not our ways. As I continue to wrestle myself and personally internally with this passage and, and what God is doing here, and these kinds of passages are actually all over the Old Testament. We just have one here for whatever reason that has created an inner turmoil within me, maybe more than normal. Uh, we have in Numbers chapter 24 a prophecy. I behold him, but not, not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. Now, ultimately, this prophecy in part is fulfilled in Jesus, but I think primarily and firstly, this is actually referring to King David of Israel. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So God has prophesied in Numbers 24 about what is happening here in 2 Samuel 8, chapter 2. Our God is a just God, and he is a God of, of judgment and of justice. This is not a popular theme, but it is a theme of the scriptures, and it is a theme here in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And God is exercising justice and judgment upon the Moabites. It was even prophesied. Now, I'm not saying that God has necessarily endorsed all of David's methods. I don't, I, I don't know the answer to that. But we do see that God is giving David victory over all of these nations, north, south, east, and west. And it is a military victory, and it is a violent victory. Let's come back to our text here as we work our way through this. Verses 3. Moreover, David fought Hadadazer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah, when he went to restore his control along the Euphrates River, David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. Let's pause here. So I'm not. Uh, some of us are uh, dog people. Dog people. Some of us are cat people, and some of us are horse people. I'm not a horse person. But I would think this would be an extremely difficult verse for a horse person. Uh, he hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. Uh, hamstrung uh, it means uh, severed the large tendon above and behind their hocks to disable them. This is a violent passage. This is a difficult passage, whether we're talking about human beings who are losing their lives in warfare or whether we are talking about horses who are hamstrung. So, um, so I wrestled with this this week also. Um, Deuteronomy 17 says this, speaking about the leaders of Israel or the king of Israel, he must not acquire many horses for himself, 
or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. It may be strange to us, but we're talking about an ancient culture and an ancient people. And for, I've mentioned many times that ancient people in the ancient Near East, they thought of crops and kids as, as what was most important. This, was, this is what we want. We want lots of crops. We want lots of children. That's what we're after. If you were a king in the ancient Near East, not just an Israelite king, but you were a king of one of the nations in the ancient Near East, one of the things you wanted, one of the metrics for power, it wasn't uh, nuclear weapons or GDP, it was horses. It was horses. That was one of the metrics of your power. And the king of Israel is told not to have a lot of horses. Since the Lord has said to you, shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold, excessive silver and gold. So no excessive amount of horses, no excessive amount of wives, no excessive amount of silver and gold. This is how the king of Israel, the leader of Israel, is to live. So to put this text in the very possible, best possible light, and what David is doing in the best possible light, he didn't wipe out the Moabites completely. He allowed a third of them to live. He didn't slaughter all of the horses, which in other battles that has happened. He hamstrung them all but a hundred of the chariot horses. Another commentator says this, the hamstrung horses supposedly could have been used as farm or pack horses. So we are not ancient Middle Eastern, Near Eastern, ancient Semitic peoples. We don't understand what warfare was like. We don't understand the ethics that they had for treating animals and how they did and did not treat animals. But this is God at work in expanding Israel's territory. And this is how things were done in the ancient Near East. God has given David the victory in his battles. It doesn't mean he's endorsed every specific thing that has happened here, but in general, God has given David the expansion of this territory and of these people. Let's come back to our text here, verses 5 and 6. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. That sentence is repeated. The Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, gave David victory wherever he went. That's repeated in verse 14, and it is really the theme of this chapter, and I'm going to connect that to gospel success in a few minutes. David's mission is very different than the mission that Jesus has given Christ followers. His mission was to rule over Israel and a particular territory, and these boundaries have been established through these military battles and conquests. So we've made it through uh, five and six, right? Yes, we're at verses five and six. One comment uh, again, to help us, a commentator, uh, John Piper, he writes this. He says, there is a point in history, a season in history, where God is the immediate king of a people, Israel. Different than the way he is a king over the church and does not have a political, ethnic, 
a political or ethnic dimension to it. There is a point in a season in history where God is the immediate king of a people, Israel, a nation, and he is, he is advancing his kingdom through that king. He's just simply reminding us that this is not, this is the old covenant, what we are looking at in 2 Samuel 8. He does not have this political or ethnic dimension to it today. So if this all seems, maybe you, this is even harder for you to read 2 Samuel 8 than it is for me, what I would say to someone who is saying that is, is in the new covenant, God is not working through a, a commander-in-chief or a king or a president in the way that he was working through King David. This is just a simple reminder of that fact. Another helpful uh, sentence that helped me this week, again, from this Australian brother, Andrew Judd, he says, God's judgment is, is one part of his plan to redeem humanity from within the mess of human history. Human history is in a mess. And God is in the process of redeeming a people, redeeming a people to know him and to love him. And he chose Israel not because they were smarter or more godly or better looking or advantageous or intellectually superior. He chose them out of his sheer grace and mercy. And this messy process of, of creating this people and their place and their space and their boundaries involves judgment of other people around them. And we are reminded this morning that God is judge and you and I are not. And so going back to what I was saying at the very beginning, my feelings sometimes often need to change in light of the truth and the reality of God's word. And this is certainly one of those situations. Let's come back to our text here, and I'm going to work through uh, the remainder of it and then draw conclusions and applications for us. So verse 7, David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem from Tabah and Barathai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer. King David took a great quantity of bronze, when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle and a battle over Hadadezer, who had been with who had been at war with him. A toy uh, with Toy, Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. Let's pause there. So this is I, I like this. So so everybody's getting wiped out. <laughs> And so this, this dude, uh, King Toy, um, says, you know what? We're not going to engage in this battle. I'm going to send my son with some, 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 some goods, so, some tribute, send it over there, and we're just simply going to become subject to them. So we do see a, a decrease in violence and overtaking here with uh, King Toy. Verse 11, King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. That's an important sentence. David is not thinking about himself. He is not seeking to gain and abuse power. He is not seeking to gain and abuse riches. All of these things that have been collected, all of these monetary treasures that he has collected, these things of tremendous value, he has dedicated them to the Lord. Do you see that in verse 11? This is not about David enriching himself. 
Verse 12, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadazer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. All of it is going for the people of Israel and for God's kingdom. Verse 13, and David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Verse 14, he put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, gave David victory wherever he went. That is the main theme in this chapter. Just a few more verses and we'll be done going through the text and then, again, draw out some implications and application. Verse 15, David reigned over Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. That is a huge sentence. David reigned over Israel doing what was just and right, key word circled in my Bible, for all his people. You know, we live in a country where uh, one of the things that we value the most is equal justice under the law for all in America. We value that. We treasure that. But let me ask you a question. You commit X crime. You're a multimillionaire. You hire the very best attorneys. You're, that's person A. Person B commits the same crime. He's got nothing. He gets a public defender. Is there equal justice in that situation? There isn't. We want, as a nation, to have equal justice, whether you are rich or whether you're poor. The reality is we don't achieve that. In ancient Israel, at least at this moment, the scriptures say David didn't consolidate power among the rich and the elite oligarchs of Israel. He, he distributed all of this wealth and all of this plunder among the people for God's work. And then in verse 15, it says, he was doing what was just and right for all his people. It wasn't just the rich or just the poor or the middle class. It was for all of Israel. There was justice, equal justice under the rule of law. That is the kind of country that we all want to live in. Verse 16, Joab, son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahiladud, and recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abiathar, were priests. Now this, for you uh, A-level Bible knowledge people, this is a different Elimelech. This is the grandson of the other Elimelech who isn't with us anymore in the journey of 2 Samuel. We're just about done here with the text. Sariah was secretary. Beniah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and Parathites. And David's sons were royal advisors or priests. We just have an administration description there in these last few verses in this summary or this catalog of 2 Samuel chapter 8. What I want to take away, what I think we need to see, what I think the text is showing us in 2 Samuel chapter 8, is that we need God's grace to affirm his justice um, even when it feels wrong. Even when it feels like this isn't just what has happened here. It is just. God is a God of justice and he is a God of judgment that is not a popular theme. That is a difficult theme for us to embrace. But God, who 
am I, who are you to tell God how to behave or who to judge or how to judge? And these nations around him have been judged and in an ancient old covenant sort of way, he has used, used the divine king of Israel, the chosen king David, to carry out that justice. So what I'm saying is we might feel one way or another way, but God's word includes this description of God's character being a God of justice and a God of judgment, and we have just looked at that in 2 Samuel chapter 8. You and I need God's grace to affirm God's justice, even when it feels wrong. Now let me talk about our feelings a little bit here. I want to say that our feelings can be simultaneously real and unreliable. And I've said this before, and I'll probably say it again, and I'm going to say it right, right now, but I think this is important. Um, maybe you've had this experience. Um, you're, you're in bed, maybe you're trying to fall asleep, you haven't been to sleep yet, or maybe it's in the middle of the night, uh, you're awake. And you remember something that you said to someone that day that you deeply regret. Now you can't go to sleep. Why did I say that? Why did I say that? And you feel miserable. And you feel guilty. And you want to go back in time and to erase those words and not say that. And it's keeping you up. And it's just become this monster in your soul, in your thought life, in that deep place. I want to suggest probably every single one of us has been there. Now, there's an occasion where that's true, right? And we need to repent. And what we did say was horrible and wounded someone. But that's not what I want to talk about today. Say amen. What I want to talk about, what I'm talking about right now, is sometimes we feel that way, and then say the next day we, we, we see that person, or we pick up the phone, or we call that person, and we say, hey, do you remember yesterday when I... And they're like, What? What are you talking about? Well, do you remember when I said, oh, yeah, me, me. So, you know, at that point, you're like, I was up for three hours last night, miserable, miserable because of what I said. And you don't say this out loud, but to yourself, you're going, you know, that person doesn't even remember what I said. What I'm trying to say, those feelings that we had in bed at night are very real. They're genuine. They're real. And simultaneously, they're unreliable to, to what happened. As I live my life following Jesus since 1987, I have an increasing confidence in, in this right here. And I have a decreasing confidence in my own feelings, in my own thinking. I don't pretend to have 2 Samuel 8 all dialed in, in my heart and soul. But I understand that my feelings are often not connected to reality, and they are not often reliable. I mean, we saw something like this just recently in 2 Samuel 7, where it seems very rational to David and to Nathan and to the reader of 2 Samuel that David should build a house, a temple for the ark. That's a, that's a feeling that David had. 
And we can go even further. David spiritualized that feeling. This is something God wants me to do. Boy, that's a dangerous thing for you and me and for David. When we say, this is what God wants me to do, but it's an unreliable feeling I have. So sometimes that feeling is connected with what God is doing. But in my own life, if I'm honest, I want to say most of the time, that's not the case. It's my confused, fallen person putting on God feelings that I have. God didn't want David to build a house. He felt that way and felt God was leading him. So we need God's grace to affirm God's justice. That's a big piece of what is in 2 Samuel 8. I'm not saying every one of those details are precise examples of God's justice, but in general, the military taking out of the nations around Israel is, in general, an example of God's justice. And God wants us to see his justice in 2 Samuel 8, even when it feels wrong to us. And I believe we also need to understand that our feelings can be simultaneously real and unreliable, whether we're reading 2 Samuel 8 or whether we're thinking about words that we said that didn't have the effect that we thought they did and we're just literally losing sleep over it. Okay, to the main point of this text. I think the main point and I think every scholar, every commentary I read, they, they, I'm not saying every comment, probably no scholar I read would preach the sermon I'm preaching, but I think every scholar I read, every commentary I read would say the main point of this text is that Yahweh gave David victory wherever he went. It wasn't David's strength. It wasn't David's military acumen. It was God who gave David his victory and his strength. So now we're finally getting to that title slide, Gospel Success. So the way a Christian reads the Old Testament is in light of the gospel, in light of the New Testament, there's a reason we call it the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, because there is a new one, a superior one, a gospel one, one based in the death, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus on the third day, and a new kingdom, not Israel, but a kingdom of every tribe and tongue and nation, people in Mexico, in Canada, in the U.S. It is a new sort of kingdom of God on earth, the church. And we need to have a different view of success than an ancient Israelite king. So the careful reader who knows the new covenant in the gospel and centrality of Jesus in the gospel reads, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went and concludes, everywhere I go, I'm going to get victory. Well, depending how we define victory, yes. So the key becomes, how do we define victory or success? So that's what I mean by gospel success. So in our last few minutes together, this third and final point, I want to talk about the difference between worldly success and gospel success. This is what we have to do when we read the Old Testament. We have to link it to the New Testament and the gospel. So gospel success does not look like military conquest to the people around Israel. That is obvious. What does gospel success look like as a Christ follower, as a believer in the foothills in 2023? Well, first, worldly success is self-oriented. Worldly success in our culture today, success, we all grow up with this unwritten paradigm of success before us. And it is a focus 
on self. It is a focus on you. It is a focus on me. So I went looking for a teacher of self-oriented worldly success this week, and I found one. Um, I like a lot of TED Talks. You listen to TED Talks, anybody? So some TED Talks are really good. Uh, This isn't one of them, the one I'm about. Uh, It's a young woman, uh, or at least she looks like a young woman. I'm getting off script here, but, you know, some women look like they're 30 or 40, but they're 50 or 60 or something like that. But anyway, we should probably just rewrite, um, erase that. So what I'm trying to say is I have no idea how old this woman is, but she looks, she looks young. How about that? that? That's good. Keep that in the recording. Okay. So this young-looking woman in her TED Talk says this, I know the secret to getting anything you want in life. And she's saying this genuine. This is at the heart of her talk. She's serious. I think five million people listen to this or something like that. I didn't write it down. A lot. A lot. So what is the secret, Jennifer Cohen, uh, to getting anything you want in life? She says, self-doubt is why we get a crappy job. It's why we don't get the body we want. Or make the money we deserve. Or stay in the relationships much longer than we know how. It's self-doubt. And so she preaches a gospel of, of courage, of confidence. And she tells compelling stories where she was courageous. And you can just hear her wanting to be this super high achieving person. And she's trying to convince her audience that she has gotten there. And you can get there too. If you just get rid of your self-doubt and have courage, you can do this. Here's how I did it. You can do it too. That's her message. I think we all know that that is a false message. That is false teaching. It is a false gospel. The success that our world teaches us is all about self. But success... New covenant success, gospel success, Jesus success is not about me getting what I want. It is not about you getting what you want, but it actually has an other orientation to it. I've talked about this before and I'll talk about it again. It's at the very heart of God, this other orientation. In John 17, Jesus is praying and he's saying to the Father, this is his intimate prayer, He's saying to the Father, Father, I've made your name known to them. That is to Christ followers, including you and me. I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. I put in a a, a little bit bigger font there. You loved me. There is an other orientation within God himself. God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, And the Father loves the Son. At the the very heart of who God is, is an orientation toward the other person of the Trinity. The Father toward the Son, the Son toward the Father, the Spirit toward the Son, the the Spirit every, every which way. And it's an orientation of love. So, Jennifer, TED Talk, It is not about me getting what I want, 
But if we want to start at the most basic principle, it's about me getting out of myself and having an other orientation. And then she might say, well, what is that other orientation? If, if a fantasy question, she would never ask me that. But the answer is that other orientation is toward God and neighbor. But we see this in the Trinity, in, in the essence of God himself. You loved me. The Father loved the Son. We see it here in John 14, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus loves the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded to me. So, if we're talking about what victory in a new covenant sense is, we saw what it was for David in history. If we're talking about gospel success, it's, it's other-oriented. If we're talking about worldly success, what our culture teaches us implicitly or explicitly in a TED Talk it is that we are, it's all about you, it's all about me. And another level of worldly success is that worldly success desires riches. We saw the opposite of that in David here. He shared all of the plunder from the other nations. He didn't abuse his power. He didn't desire this. He didn't even desire to be king. He was out with the sheep in a pasture if we go all the way back. He didn't seek any of this out. Worldly success desires riches. This TED Talk, she desired riches. And the metric of worldly success is riches. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men and women and boys and girls into ruin and destruction. The desire to get rich and to be rich is part of this worldly lie about what success is. So gospel success is being content with the essentials. There's no right or wrong to being poor or middle class or rich, but there is a wrongness to desiring and valuing riches. And no matter what income bracket you are in, in this wealthy, powerful, wealthiest country in the world, no matter what income bracket you're in, God wants us to be content with the essentials, and most of us have more than that. First Timothy 6, 8, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. What we are doing right now is we are applying 2 Samuel chapter 8 in light of the gospel, in light of the New Testament, in light of the new covenant. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. What kind of victory, what kind of success does he want to give you and me? We're talking about what gospel success is. It's not self-oriented. It doesn't desire riches. And it doesn't look to maximize power. Worldly success maximizes my power. I want 20 million people. I want 200 million people following my, watching my TED Talk. I want to maximize power. Gospel success maximizes service. It has a different metric. It is, we, we looked at this last week, and I'm hitting a lot of themes we've hit in recent weeks. Service. The Son of Man, our Savior, our Lord, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're talking about the first coming. If we were talking about the second coming, there's a lot of parallels in the second coming and justice in 2 Samuel chapter 8. There's a lot of violence, a lot of destruction, a lot of judgment with the second coming. But we live in between the first coming and the second coming. In Jesus' first coming, he came not to judge, not to be served, but to serve. And this is how he has called his followers to live. This is what gospel success looks like. And you and I, like David, can get victory in all these realms of life 
through God's grace, through the Spirit. Worldly success is circumstance dependent. It's circumstance dependent. Meaning we want our life to go the way we want it to go. We want it to be comfortable. We want to be healthy. We want to be fit. We want to be, um, we want our children and our grandchildren to be doing well. And when those things are well, then I will be well. That is worldly success. It's circumstance dependent. But gospel, gospel success is circumstance independent. It is not dependent on circumstance. Oh, is this good news? I love, you know, as, as I need to grow in my understanding to love 2 Samuel chapter 8, I need to grow to, to be able to resonate with 2 Samuel 8 the way I resonate with Philippians chapter 4. Unlike the TED Talk woman, Paul has actually learned to be content in whatever circumstances he finds himself. And many of you know the circumstances he has found himself in were crazy and insane and all over the map. Shipwrecks and starvation and prison. Things far beyond what most of us have experienced here. But he has learned to be content. He has learned gospel success. How? How? Will you just get rid of your self-doubt and you have courage? And it, no, That is not what he says. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. How, Paul? How? In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. How? Both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him. That's the answer. Through him. It is through a relationship with Jesus Christ who strengthens me by his grace where I can have success that isn't dependent upon my circumstances. We're sometimes surprised when we see joyful people whose circumstances are terrible. I'm sometimes surprised when I see people whose circumstances are terrible, but they're Christians and they're full of joy. Maybe you've had this experience too. Um, many of you have traveled to Mexico. Many of you have supported young people who've gone on mission trips to Mexico. And there is a, a story, a theme, a recurring theme that I've heard from short-term mission trips who come back from Mexico. They're often there to build a church building or build some houses or help expand or maybe work in an orphanage. They're in a Christian environment in Mexico. And they come back, and you probably know where I'm going, many of you, right now. You know what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it still. Um, they say something like this, these people have so little and yet so much joy and there's confusion and surprise. Have you read Philippians 4? <laughs> we shouldn't be confused. We shouldn't be surprised unless we believe the gospel of worldly success. Then we're surprised that people who have food and covering and shelter and Jesus could be living joyful, beautiful lives. And they actually might have a lot to teach us and to show us. 
And we actually, the ones who think they're coming down to Mexico to help them, we actually need them to come up here and help us understand the gospel and how it is we are to live. I, I did a little research. Mexico, median household income in 2021, $13,989. Median household income in the U.S., uh, $70,784. That's in 2021. Median household income is not a metric of gospel joy. It is not connected to gospel success. We are circumstance independent. That's what it means to have success. And then finally and lastly, we have worldly success says high achievement. It just screamed out in this TED Talk, this, this young appearing woman, screaming out, she got most uh, excited and connected when she talked about where she bumped it up to this elite level in her own business world and her own doings. And when she, she bumped it up to the, the, these super elite people and I was rubbing shoulders with them, man, I, I made it and you can too. High achievement. High achievement. I'm not going to put up here low achievement. Okay? doesn't mean we don't work hard as Christians. That's another sermon. But it is not about high achievement. What does the Bible teach? What does the gospel teach? What does gospel success look like? Well, for ancient Near Eastern Israelite king, success looked like being faithful with his army, 2 Samuel 8. But what does it look like for me as a retired person or a student in the foothills in 2023? It looks like being a faithful steward. A faithful steward of the talents, the gifts, the resources that God's given you. We should be asking ourselves, am I a faithful steward of the talents, of the gifts, of the time, of the resources that God's given me? We'll close with this today. We looked at this last week, I think, or the week before. The parable of the talents. The talents represent everything we, God's given you and me. Time, treasure, resource, spiritual gifts, everything. The master in this parable represents Jesus. Person A is given so much talent, time, treasure, spiritual gifts. Person B is given a different amount, not the same amount. One's given more and one's given less. But he says the exact same thing to both of them. Why? Because they were faithful. The master replied, well, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. You get increased responsibility if you're a faithful steward of what God's given you. Your time, your treasure, your spiritual gifts, your talents. He's going to give you more responsibility. And he's going to give you more joy and happiness. Come and share in your master's happiness. It's not about how, how much money, how much time, how Many spiritual gifts I've been given. I've been given this. Someone else has been given more. Someone else has been given less. That's God's doing. Our doing is am I faithful with what he's given to me? We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. This is really, the gospel is so freeing. He hasn't called you to be 
elite in anything. Maybe you will be like David, an elite warrior. That's just simply how God gifted David. What he's called David to, and he's called me to, and called you to, is to be faithful with what God has given us. And if we are faithful with what he's given us, we will hear, well done. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Lord, we are so impacted by the world that we're confused when we travel to the developing world, when we travel to a church of believers, of people who love Jesus, who are incredibly poor, and we're surprised at their joy in life, the happiness in their families. Lord, help us not to be surprised at that, whether we're poor or middle class or rich. May Jesus be our greatest treasure, and may we be found to be faithful stewards of the talents he's given us, of the treasure he's given us, of the time he's given us. May we use these things to advance your kingdom, to love you, to love neighbor. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.